0: Okay, democracy needs this. This is the most loved argument, especially in the States. And it is an argument that, as I'll be saying in the course of this lecture, has come relatively recently to Britain, partly because we don't have the liberal arts tradition of uh, the, ex- the, the general degree, if you like, as the base of university education, which is really where that argument comes from um, in the 1950s. Um, it's I have never heard the democracy argument used other than in the mode of polemic. And as you are acutely aware by now, I'm sure I'm not doing polemic in these lectures. I'm doing analysis and the tone is more acerbic than it is assertive, if you like. Um, I am going to give this argument a hard time. Quite a lot is left standing at the end. But it seems to me that of all the arguments that we have for the humanities, this is the one that ought to be able to take being put through its critical paces because it depends exactly on the training that we give people supposedly in critical thinking, okay, in the broad sense about history, about language, about rhetoric and so forth, but if it can't take its own tenet about you know, Socratic, you know, so- Socratic questioning, then I think it has a problem, are you okay then? Okay. okay, fine. Right, so the full title for this is Democracy Needs Us, the Gadfly Argument for the Humanities. I'm going to give you the contrarian literary critic's way into this, not the way in you would normally hear it. all. It's a 1938 novel by Rex Warner called The Professor. Fairly much lost to history, though I have found a few older people who know and loved it from their youth. Um, Warner's hero is a distinguished classicist at an unnamed university in a minor European state. Not named, but it's pretty obviously modelled on Austria between about 1932 and 1938. He's the greatest living authority on Sophocles. He knows pretty much everything you could know about uh, the languages and times of antiquity. He finds himself called upon to lead the nation at a moment of crisis when the imminent possibility of fascist takeover by a neighboring country is threatening the future of the democracy. He's an eloquent exponent of the history and the philosophy of democracy but he proves for his own time most inapt his conception of the ancient greek polis as the first safety zone for a liberal organization of citizens against the barbarism of others just fails to take seriously enough the extent of the threat and the kind of the threat facing his own democracy there is his son who's more politically actively engaged than his father on the streets his son remonstrates with them publicly and, says, uh, publicly and says, there is no enclosed space in Europe. The enemies of democracy are in control of our democracies. You, my father, with all your wisdom, sympathy and culture, uh, however little you may like the idea helping to destroy us. The word polis suddenly seems like a joke over a dying man. The professor lasts two days in power before being forced to flee from office when his chief of police conducts a coup on behalf of the fascists. And in a symbolic attack on the culture, the liberal aspirations of education to which he's dedicated his life, he has to watch from the shadows of the university quadrangle as the students burn his library. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Herodotus, Thucydides, and they pick out for special attention for some reason Keats. Shall we bung it in with the rest? What do you say, boys, says the student leader? Of course I shall abide by your democratic decision. Bung it in and damn democracy. Okay, up to this point, I'm making it sound pretty much like didactic allegory. It's something better than that. It doesn't fully undermine the professor's idealism, his, his evident intellectual commitment to the culture of philosophical debate, the scholarly preservation of knowledge and aesthetic judgment, even as it depicts his unfitness to lead the democracy in wartime. So it's kind of speaking at once for and against the importance of the humanities as the cultural bedrock of a democratic polity. Now, unsurprisingly, as far as I can see, it's never made it onto the great books courses of the liberal arts tradition in America, although Warner's 1944 translation of Medea has. Depicting a moment of crisis at which the democratic culture is put into suspension by the exigencies of fighting fascism, it isn't a comfortable fit with the work of sustaining and enhancing a democratic culture that has been the purpose of liberal arts curricula, past and present. And in key respects, it's hardly a fair test of the educational values it's both defending and mourning, the movement of the humanities professor from his role as a critic of government to be the governor is by the novels and his own lights a mistake. It's not surprising that someone who spent his life in scholarship should, have, um, should prove a poor political leader. Nor is there any real difficulty with the thought that democratics need to be, democratic values sorry, need to be backed up by strong armies. The Athenians would have agreed. So in asking so explicitly what are the limits of the humanities democratic influence the professor can serve I think as the skeptics way in to the most ambitious argument for the public value of the humanities now regularly heard in America and Britain for what's for quite different reasons widely seen as another kind of crisis for liberal education. Okay, so it's deliberately um, provocative. Uh, Right. I'm going to use Martha Nussbaum, I should say something about this. I've selected her from a much larger literature on the subject because she's the most high profile and robust of recent people pushing the democratic argument for the humanities in the context of the pressures on the humanities right now. Martha Nussbaum's not-for-profit, which I mentioned in an earlier lecture, is the most high profile of several efforts in recent years to persuade governments and publics historically committed to liberal educational ideals that a good reason, even the primary one for preserving that commitment, is that a healthy democracy depends on it. Her manifesto is an eloquent restatement of the founding principles of the American liberal arts system. But if her main claims wouldn't have been alien to the deans and professors who drew up liberal arts curricula in the aftermath of Rex Warner's coming war, I think the air of beleagueredness would have surprised them. This is a a much quoted, it's one of the most extracted passages from her book. Thirsty for national profit, nations and their systems of education are heedlessly discarding skills that are needed to keep democracies alive. If this trend continues, nations all over the world will soon be producing generations of useful machines, rather than complete citizens who can think for themselves, criticize tradition, and understand the significance of another person's sufferings and achievements. It's no accident that this, the most polemical form of the democracy needs us argument is also the most defensive form. Not-for-profits an urgent appeal to university leaders and the wider public for renewed commitment to the liberal arts system across the American secondary and tertiary education levels, at a time when that commitment's under pressure from falling enrollments, cuts in budgets, prioritization of useful skills over humanistic studies, and increasingly corporatist university administrations presiding over and reinforcing those priorities. In other words, the perceived enemy of democracy today is not an alternative political system such as fascism, but the effect of a global capitalist system that ignores or discounts reasoned debate about the aims and ideals of the polity in favor of market forces, forces that are at once theoretically unrestrained but in practice deeply distortive, distorted by political policies. Okay, so question of genre. What does it mean to write a manifesto for a kind of education that already exists? Or does Nussbaum believe that the liberal arts model has like some political theories one could think of never been fully tested? Certainly her idea of a fully liberalized education from primary to tertiary level that would ensure the health of the democracy involves a more strenuous mission statement than any institution has yet to put its name to, I think. She has a seven point plan, that's two up on Dewey, for educating the emotions and thereby yielding better, more tolerant, more responsible citizens who will be skilled in critical thinking, courageous in dissent, willing and able to argue free of the constraints of deference or the assumptions of authority. She bases that plan in part on a theory of healthy moral development in childhood as involving positional thinking about the perspectives of others, learning, empathy, controlling your aggression and so forth. From this model of early education, she extrapolates many of her claims for what a higher education should do. Though, and this is one of the points I wanna stress here, it seems to me unclear why a higher education should be considered a necessity in the same terms that a primary and secondary education may be. And there's a very swift slippage I think made in a lot of the arguments for the democratizing effects of a liberal education from those different levels of education. Some lines of skepticism do get a hearing, but the answers move fairly quickly past potential difficulties. So she says, responsible citizenship requires the ability to assess historical evidence, to use and think critically about economic principles, to assess accounts of social justice, to speak a foreign language, to appreciate the complexities of the major world religions. The factual part, she says, we could do without the skills and techniques that we associate with the humanities, that we've come to associate with them. But a catalog of facts without the ability to assess them or to understand how a narrative is assembled from evidence is almost as bad as ignorance. Since the people will not be able to distinguish ignorant stereotypes pervade by politicians and cultural leaders from the truth or bogus claims from valid ones. World history and economic understanding then must be humanistic and critical if they're to be at all useful in forming intelligent global citizens, and they must be taught alongside the study of religion and of philosophical theories of justice. This is a prose powered by imperatives, requires times two, must times two, and by moral plain speaking, good, bad, true, bogus. It is in other words, a strikingly unsocratic defense of a Socratic education, though that may be a sacrifice mandated by the genre of the manifesto, of course, More problematically, it's an argument that moves fairly deftly to a light humanistic and critical so that economics and law, for example, become honorary branches of the humanities as soon as they start scrutinizing their own knowledge claims. The reference to skills and techniques we have come to associate with the humanities, however, indicates at least gesturally that we may be in the terrain Andrew Abbott describes in Chaos of Disciplines and that I talked about in the second lecture in this series whereby a field is pressed to show its more aggressive edge in response to relative neglect of its skills and techniques in other areas of the university or in public life. So I'm sympathetic to this. What currently looks humanistic about certain kinds of education then is so not by virtue of the humanity's definitive ownership of historical argument or comparative cultural understanding or philosophical skepticism but because such intellectual and for Nussbaum they're also ethical practices seem now underrepresented and under regarded in disciplines and even whole faculties where they once had a prominent place. So I assume that most pertinently we're targeting here the social and political sciences. In the main Nussbaum's case rests on her view of the humanities as having a much longer historical and political importance than would be explained by such relatively recent changes in the disciplines though. The roots of her defense lie not just generally with the Socratic mode of argument, but specifically in Plato's account of the true philosopher's role within the political state. In Benjamin Jowett's translation of the famous passage from the Apology, and now Athenian says Socrates, I am not going to argue for my own sake, as you may think, but for yours. For if you kill me, you will not easily find another like me, who, if I may use such a ludicrous figure of speech, am a sort of gadfly, mupostinos, given to the state, polis, by the god, and the state is like a great and noble steed who is tardy in his motions owing to his very size and requires to be stirred into life. I am that gadfly which God has given the state and all day long and in all places I am always fastening upon you, arousing and persuading and reproaching you and as you will not easily find another like me, I would advise you to spare me. A literal translation of the central metaphor would be a sort of gadfly or spur, mupos puns on spur and gadfly given to the city, polis, Jowett renders polis imperfectly but conventionally enough as a state. Nussbaum substitutes another Greek word, democratia. As she has it, I'm a sort of gadfly given to the democracy by the gods. Attention to the figure of the gadfly is, in justice to her, not much more than a passing note in her discussion, something more than a grace note, but rather less than a major theme. The main emphasis is on the wider Socratic inheritance conditioning the humanity's sense of their own vocational and social function. On the other hand, it's worth thinking about that translational small sleight of hand. Making the substitution of the democracy for the polis not found in any standard translation clearly assists her case for the importance of Socratic pedagogy to a democratic political culture. She goes on to chart a genealogy of educational reformers in his long wake, from Rousseau through Pestalozzi, Froebel, Bronson Alcott, Horace Mann, and above all, John Dewey in America and Rabindranath Tagore in India. But re-accenting Plato's terms also enables her to cast into relative shadow aspects of the Socratic model that do not as readily recommend themselves to modern democratic theory and practice. So what I wanna do in this next bit of this argument is think about what work we might need to do to re-describe the Socratic model if it's really going to work for us rather than just point to it as our uh, practice. It's necessary to step back a bit at this point in order to gauge what's non-conventional about Nussbaum's version of the argument for all its continuities with the standard liberal arts claims about education helping to cultivate informed civic consciousness. The classical claim for the political value of education, long predating the more specific aspirations of liberal education, was that it functions as a cultural qualification for the exercise of political and administrative power. I'm quoting Ian Hunter, an essay called Literary Theory and Civil Life from the South Atlantic Quarterly. (laughs) More important than any practical considerations of training here is the idea that education may instill what Hunter calls a common set of discursive and moral reflexes. That claim makes no particular assumptions about knowledge content or predating such disciplinary divisions about the value of the humanities as compared with say law or politics or economics as core elements of the curriculum. Though most of the models derived from antiquity reserve a prominent place for rhetoric as the art of political persuasion. This view, the older view, is in its essentials fairly bland. It makes very few assumptions about the kind of polity involved. Unless one invokes the extreme case of tyranny, no kind of government will prosper better with ignorant leaders or administrators than it will from having at its disposal intelligent and informed individuals. Oligarchy, aristocracy, even one-party dictatorship require in that broad outlook educated members. They'll differ crucially from democracy, of course, in how far they want to extend the goods of education to the populations governed. And how far they attempt to use education as a means of ideological control. But all of them will hold, in some measure, that education is a desirable qualification for the exercise of political and administrative power. The distinctive claim made by advocates of an education in and for democracy is that because in a democracy it's the people who govern, the people must be equipped by education to govern well. It's not a coincidence that extension of the franchise in Britain and America over the 19th and early 20th centuries ran in tandem with extension of the right to a free state education. That democracy might benefit from the general educational provision associated with liberal arts curricula has been an important claim, especially in America from the 1940s. That democracy has any specific need of the humanities is a much less common assertion, despite its superficial similarity to other statements sometimes yoked to the humanities defense, including Derrida's No Democracy Without Literature, No Literature Without Democracy. The claim that beyond all this democracy has any specific need of a higher education in the humanities is still less conventional. It presents an immediate problem of access that's already highly politicised in its own right, of course. The most ambitious target for participation in tertiary education in the UK has been 50 per cent under New Labour, 50 per cent of 18 to 30 year olds. The highest achieved figure is 43 per cent. You can't really make, at least I've not been able to make an exact comparison with America, but the latest US Census Bureau statistics give figures for the 20 to 21 year old band, which show 50.1 per cent attending undergraduate or graduate college. Of the total enrolment in both countries, a diminishing percentage majors in the humanities, currently just over 15% in the UK, just under 16% in the US, with the important difference um, that um, that US liberal arts curricula allow for uptake of the humanities by students who won't go on to major in them. Although I've been talking quite a bit about the liberal heritage of some of these arguments, I'm gonna give that a very small place in this argument because it seems to me that the major interest of um, an historicizing of the arguments here would be that there's a really very low degree of fit between them indeed. Insofar as any of the major British advocates for a liberal education in the 19th century tied education to the good functioning of democracy, they tended to see it as a way of controlling and easing the transition towards democracy. A majority of them had doubts either about the democratic ideal or about how far society's educators could be expected to bring the current practice closer to the ideal. Now the incompleteness of franchise reform even at the end of the Victorian period is less germane here than the distinction each of them made, quite independent of their support or otherwise for reforms of the ballot, between equality of representation and as they saw it, the necessary superiority of intellect, character and education desirable in the people's representatives and those involved in the administration of the state's affairs. And I don't think we can simply brush that aside as a kind of Victorian elitism that we no longer need to have any truck with. As John Stuart Mill put it in considerations on representative government, 1861, and I'm selecting him because he's in other respects, obviously the most egalitarian of the major Victorian thinkers about democratic representation. As he puts it, the natural tendency of representative government as of modern civilization is towards collective mediocrity and this tendency is increased by all reductions and extensions of the franchise, their effect being to place the principal power in the hands of classes more and more below the highest level of instruction in the community. But though the superior intellects and characters will necessarily be outnumbered, it makes a great difference whether or not they are heard. In the false democracy, which instead of giving representation to all, gives it only to the local majorities, the voice of the instructed minority may have no organs at all in the representative body. Most Victorian reservations about the democratic purposes of education just aren't relevant anymore, I think, to the debate about what the humanities can contribute to democracy now. They're of interest to me because they indicate the extent to which even now we're arguing on relatively new terrain, so the arguments we use aren't particularly well mapped out by history. In one respect, however, the questions they raise about the relation of education to the good running of government identify a problem we still have to reckon with. There's a famous objection to views of the kind that Mill expresses here, that afford a privileged political place to the instructed few. To prefer as he would have preferred the principal power to be in the hands of those classes who have received the highest level of instruction in the community, at least to allow them to be very strongly heard, is to support a guardianship model of democracy about which presumably most of us have proper doubts. The exacting educational requirements set out for rulers in Plato's Republic, most obviously, are key to defining a version of democracy that would exclude much the larger part of the demos from power. Opponents of guardianship democracy standardly argue that in requiring a level of education for its representatives above the ordinary provision of citizens, the guardianship model sets the bar for entry too high. If democracy is to retain a a founding connection with a belief in political equality, That argument has to be clinching. Yet the political philosopher Robert Dahl, famously skeptical of guardianship democracy, thinks many educated people will instinctively try to wriggle out of it. He asks us to imagine a debate between the representative of the demos and the representative of the aristoi. Aristos defends guardianship via an appeal to the collective wisdom of modern philosophers of democracy, mill prominent among them. This is the imagined debate between demos and aristoi, Aristos speaking you, Demos, really do agree with me that the process of governing the state ought to be restricted to those who are qualified to govern. I know most Democrats recoil from such an idea. You fear that by openly admitting this assumption, you'll give the game away at the start to those of us who support guardianship. Certainly in your democratic theory, philosophy and argument, this dangerous premise is rarely made explicit precisely because it's so dangerous to your case. Yet I don't believe that any important political philosopher in the democratic tradition, Locke, Rousseau, Jeremy Bentham, James Mill, for example, has ever rejected it, though perhaps only John Stuart Mill made it fully explicit. But such a political arrangement would, in truth, be not democracy, but hierarchy, hierarchy. That's the imagined riposte from demos. Nor will the critic of guardianship easily be appealed by the response that Mill would have made, that if privileged access to education by class is taken out of the picture, we're dealing acceptably with meritocracy, not guardianship. Doesn't education, as Bourdieu and others have told us, too commonly conceal the reproduction of social class with an illusion of democratic openness? Now, outside the parameters of Rex Warner's novel, no one's suggesting that the principal power in the democracy should lie with the humanities departments of universities and those they educate. Nevertheless, the suspicion that the guardianship model haunts the democracy needs this argument as it gets yoked to the humanities cause would be consistent both with Plato and with the long line of adherence to the gadfly model after him, Neither Plato nor Socrates as the apology above all ought to remind us was an admirer of democracy, however tempered their views by recognition that the restored Athenian democracy from 403 CBE was stable and without obvious feasible alternatives. If the Socratic gadfly is famously the irritant conscience of the state, it's by no means clear that his role is, as I said, particular to democracy since his function would be as valid under oligarchy or any political system with the possible exceptions of dictatorship and theocracy which may be why Socrates doesn't specify to the King Archon's court and its jurors the kind of polis on which the philosopher acts by divine license. Nor is it at all clear that his role is distinctively aligned with the humanities, given the pre-disciplinary articulation of a Socratic method that has bearing on all aspects of intellectual, social, and political life. In terms of content, the Socratic dialogues belong in modern politics, social science, law, theology, at least as clearly as they belong to the humanities. I'm wondering where you put theology, probably in the humanities, <laughs> okay. The Socratic gadfly is the er form of Julian Bondar's intellectual speaking truth to power, of Karl Mannheim's ideal intelligentsia charged with correcting the narrowly classed and party-bound interests of the rest of society, and of many other romanticizing accounts of the intellectual as a quasi-external authority on the structure and operations of political life. And with Bondar in mind, one could outline a less flattering genealogical account of the humanity's relationship to democratic ideals than Nussbaum provides. Such an account might follow the lines indicated in Francis Mulhern's Culture Metaculture, from Thomas Mann's Reflections on an Unpolitical Man, through Bondas La Trahison des Clairs*, Mannheim's Ideology and Utopia, Ortega's The Revolt of the Masses, to Lévis's Mass Civilization and Minority Culture. The story then would be much more in line with Socrates' reluctant assent to democracy, but revised as the story of a specialist cadre, or to use Coleridge's preferred medievalism, a clerisy rather than an exceptional individual not easily replaced. The philosopher critics imagined in Mulhern's words supervening over the political space from a higher plane of social judgment rather than involved in its deliberations on terms of equality of status. Unless anyone assume that the higher plane assumption is self-evidently self-discrediting, or that the changes in the understanding of culture from Raymond Williams onwards have rendered the idea of a clor- clerisy obsolete. It's worth observing that it does have advocates even now, I think most explicitly and most interestingly in Britain, Jonathan Bate, who has repeatedly defended the humanizing work of universities by appealing to the Coleridge view. He combines it with more modern claims for the humanities contribution to the knowledge economy and, and improving global security. He makes a quite an interesting case for the extension and dissemination of the humanizing work of university faculties through podcast lectures, for example, and so forth, um, to that end. Now, none of this barrage of skepticism means that there's no way of adapting or modernizing the Socratic role so that it does relate a higher education in the humanities to democracy without smuggling in an assumption of guardianship. But it leaves us quite a lot of work to do in the way of adaptation and modernization. Collectively, we can't all be gadflies. Annette Bayer has warned, or we run the risk of becoming no better than a plague. Why in Richard Rorty's approving gloss, should the rest of society then not merely tolerate but subsidize our activity? There's an obvious opening here to counter that bent of the metaphor with Hart and and Negri's conception of the global democratic multitude or swarm. If you were looking at UK media reports in 2010 on student protests in the streets of London and elsewhere around the country, they very frequently had recourse to exactly that metaphor, the swarm. We don't have to endorse Hart and Negri's inebriate vision of power through political faith, I'm quoting Tom Nairn approvingly, to claim contra bear that the humanities might be, as it were, a large collective gadfly, for example, by, re- by reminding present-day society of inconvenient but pertinent facts about its past and its cultural heritage. This sounds more promising. But again, it's not self-evident that the humanities have special rights or responsibilities here over disciplines with more obvious claims to understanding the operations of modern government and modern economies. The potential redundancy of criticism that Bayer and Rorty fear can, I think, be discounted. Why place limits on the amount of critical self-scrutiny a democracy can bear? A more legitimate difficulty with a plague of modern Socratic gadflies operating out of our universities involves the stark conflict between the isolated adjutant role of the Socratic philosopher and the institutionalised and professionalised function of the modern academic. If we want nearer models for the kind of professional, scholarly and structuredly educational work we do, Bruce Robbins has suggested, we might have to start by rethinking the Socratic animus towards rhetoric and sophistry. We also need a sharper account of how the anti-authoritarian attitudes of Socrates can yield a model of critical inquiry now that is a social practice, rather than, as Macaulay jadedly saw it, the charismatic performance of one man with a thorough love for making other men look small. More immediately, since we don't lack good accounts, I think, of the social and political responsibilities of our profession, so I'd point you to John Gillery, Bruce Robbins himself, um, and others. Um, We don't lack those good accounts, um, but we need, I think, an account of our characteristic intellectual objects and activities that more accurately allows us to identify our role in relationship to the democracy. As classically imagined, the Gladfly figure makes us both anti-authoritarian and anti-statist in a way that doesn't help us to that end, nor does it enable us to articulate why the humanities might be particularly well-equipped to meet certain of the democracy's current needs. Justification by way of cultural distinctions between intellectual disciplines quickly leads, as I argued in the lecture on the history of two and three culture debates, to misdescription. A draft version of this lecture, for which I retain some affection and conviction, pursued the claim that the humanities have a particular gadfly role to play as a corrective to the dominance of quantitative modes of reasoning and political life. So for example, if we believe that the sheer quantity of information gathering and information provision that attends government at the moment is inimical to coherent debate about policy, so, for example, it's much easier to produce a 400-page document about the state of our public libraries, for example, by cutting and pasting everybody's you know, views sent in from their computers all around England than it is to produce a condensed document that articulates the problems and articulates some possible ways to go. You can produce a massive clotting of, of the arena of debate, if you like, much more easily than you can contribute coherently to it at the moment. If we think that's a problem, We might claim that it is within the remit of the humanities to show where the democratic interest in open government may be misdirected into obfuscatory proceduralism, or where supposed devolution of power to the people in what Britain's prime minister was at one time fond of calling a post-bureaucratic age can misrepresent a dismantling of the state. Or where the economistic assumptions at work in the audit culture that shapes not just our universities, but all our public spheres starts damaging public values, including the value of education, by translating them into the language and values of demonstrable public impact. Or indeed just by making the work of assessment so time consuming that the cost of accounting to government starts to uh, contest heavily with the value of the public monies being distributed. The draft pages, this is the bit of the lecture under erasure, as you can hear, also precede the suggestion of one sympathetically inclined UK economist, Hamish McCrae, that it's surely within the remit of the humanities to remind our colleagues in the social sciences that econometricians, ignorant of history, are liable to make serious political and economic errors. Some or all of these suggestions, I think, are genuinely opportunities for the humanities to serve the public good. But it's still insufficiently clear, to me at least, that the democracy needs the humanities specifically to do the job. Most of the needs that I've just identified are needs any critically educated member or group of the democracy could respond to intelligently whatever their educational specialization. If secondary education has been broad and included enough of the skills being associated here with the humanities, but not solely theirs, then is there really a case for the special democratic force of a humanities higher education? In one of these instances, the need for the higher education in a humanities discipline does seem to be clear. And that's the case where a secondary education in history some years back in your life is probably not going to give you the knowledge necessary to identify the relevant areas of historical ignorance in, for example, economic theory and practice today. But the more general protections of democracy look rather less, obviously, in need of higher humanities training. Moreover, if supplying a lack or remedying a failure in the governance of the democracy is represented as the humanity's primary justification of ourselves, it heavily skews what we do in one direction, aligning us with political work that's unquestionably important, but not obviously exclusively or even distinctively ours to do and likely to be done better by others. The us is a problem, I think. The first person plural is the regularly preferred point of view for much writing about the academic profession for the academic profession. It's a rhetorical sleight of hand by which the concerns of the profession can be made to sound entirely congruent with those of the democratic polity as a whole. But the profession isn't the representative body of the democracy and quite who's included as the agents of the humanities claim to be a bulwark of democracy is very often unclear. If the us in democracy needs us is taken to refer to those of us who are scholars or students of the humanities in the universities, it does seem then to commit us willingly or not to a guardianship model of of the democracy. Rational coherence then requires us to accept, however reluctantly, that Plato and Mill were right, and that democracy left to itself is a noble but sluggish beast in need of our goading. But if the us is a bid for all members of the democracy to protect the good operation of the democracy by exercising our critical capacities, humanities departments will be one place among many nurturing those abilities. The humanities academic, much as he or she can claim expertise in critical thinking, will have no special, no additional authority in the political domain above that of ordinary citizens. If the distinction between the higher level practice of the professional few and the sufficiently educated practice of the many goes unmade, Humanity scholars risk falling into the error Ian Hunter identifies when he warns against mistaking the prestigious ethical comportment available within the university to literary theorists. That sounds a bit dated now, doesn't it? Maybe more broadly to cultural critics. Risk confusing it with our roles as citizens. They also risk confusing the kinds of critical capacity that it's desirable a democracy should have available within it with the critical capacities requisite for its survival or for individual participation in it. This doesn't mean that the work of humanities departments shouldn't be political, or that it can't seek to change actual social and cultural life, as Luke Menand puts it. It certainly doesn't mean that their scholars have no responsibilities as members of a profession to the ideal of democratic equality, or more particularly that their work shouldn't recognise and respond to the serious imperfections in that ideal as witnessed in today's actual social and cultural arrangements. Nor does it mean that fidelity to democratic ideals shouldn't be part of the university's professional discourses of legitimation. But the ideals that characterise humanities scholar's professional life and work aren't the same thing as the discipline's justification for being, or in the more specific UK context, it's justification for being in receipt of public funds. Now, I'm now gonna turn to the person who I think has made the best effort to, if you like, solve these sticking points for us in the debate. The most persuasive effort to date to make the case for the democratic force of the humanities in the UK, keeping in view that distinction between the academy as the home of expert practice and the academy is the place that nurtures skills widely practiced beyond it, is Francis Mulhern's paper for a one-day conference at Birkbeck College London entitled, Why Humanities? As I say, the conference took place in 2010, and it's easiest if you just Google Francis Mulhern, Why Humanities Birkbeck, and you'll get it immediately. One of the strengths of Mulhern's position is that he recognises the degree of under-definition in any appeal to the humanities' democratic commitments as evidence of their contribution to the common good. People who seek to defend the work of humanities departments, he observes, regularly invoke their ability to foster skills and values that are essential to a democratic society. In doing so, they've tended to align themselves with an obviously desirable ethical comportment on the part of individuals and institutions Mm -hmm. in a way that confers easy benefit, you could add easy esteem on the speaker or institution, but does little to identify the current needs of the democracy. So. Quote, something akin to democracy turns up under the heading of equality of opportunity in recent British accounts of humanity's education, he notes, but this quickly becomes an economic good. Something else akin to democracy turns up under the heading of tolerance and quickly becomes a cultural good, a putative British identity and this is the longer quotation from him, what is far less in evidence is any conviction about the demands of a properly functioning democracy, the culture of democratic practices by which, in however limited a sense, the population is said to govern itself. A democracy is a form of polity in which alternatives are conceived and propagated, interpreted and evaluated in open debate, then decided on directly or according to various norms of representation. One in which this central deliberative process is embodied, is, there, is embedded in a wider culture of free investigation, criticism and advocacy, with a media appropriately organised and supported. One in which the general culture supports an open play of suggesting, imagining and evaluating the possibilities of the common life. End of quote. The argument for the humanities contribution to democracy is not, as Mulhern expresses it, a definitional defence, and it doesn't seek to be one. It puts democracy first and the contribution of the humanities second. It's the product of a particularly bleak moment in the recent history of higher education in the UK at which some humanities departments had recently faced closure. Many were and still are seeing their work distorted by administrative efforts to maximise government funding. And the idea that universities might have a gadfly function in relation to the governing of the polity has played no part in the governor's sense of what public funds are to be used for. In response to these defamations, I'm not sure the last one is particularly defamation, but the the first and second certainly are. In response to these defamations of the political and institutional cultures in which the humanities do their work, Mulhern selects some of the many intellectual practices pursued by the humanities, trained deliberation, criticism, advocacy, evaluation, mediation of ideas with respect to norms of representation. And he identifies them as having special importance for the good political functioning of a democracy. His argument locates the common ground of the humanities in their attention to critical reason. Now it seems to me (coughs) that the obvious counterpoint or the alternative there would be the claim that is quite often made for language. So I'm thinking about Debbie Cameron in this university, for example, or Isabel Armstrong in her book, The Radical Aesthetic where the argument is that you cannot give people access to the proper functioning within democracy if they don't have access to language, if they're not fully, critically, educationally taken into the language. The claim for critical reasons seems to me more generalizable across the humanities than the claim for attention to language, which is certainly something that literary criticism departments do, par excellence. It's not as obviously the thing that a, that a, a history department, for example, does, although a historian, of course, needs to be alert to language in some measure considerable measure. The primary complaints Mulhern makes then about the current state of our universities are less uttered in alarm at a world crisis in educational values than they are aimed at particular national policies that may have do have parallels elsewhere but they remain specific to particular democratic structures and particular elected governments and this is the second I think it's the last substantial quotation from him. One of the special frustrations of observing new Labour's adventures in university policy in the UK was the persistent confusion of the democratic demand for access with the instrumental requirement to retool the workforce and the reduction of both to an arbitrary numerical target. Another feature of the period was the currency of ignorant and offensive comments about degree programs such as media studies. What does it say about elected politicians that they cannot take seriously the idea of investigating the cultural forms that are their own most important plane of operation? The higher level intellectual practices that are the everyday core of humanities teaching and learning are also core practices of a democratic culture, such as we supposedly have and value. And that, in general social terms, is one good reason why humanities. If elected politicians still can't get the point, if university managements are too far advanced in their corporatist makeover to explain it to them or even get it themselves, we would at least have been enlightened as to the effective reality of their commitment to democracy. End of quote. This strikes a polemical note especially in closing but it's polemic qualified by an awareness of the limits of its power and its likely audience it grants the humanities a special interest in the critical examination of the cultural forms vital to the democracy but it eschews the language of moralism in favor of the operation of critical reason for Mulhern the key practices involved are interpretation and evaluation not least of the role of media in assisting decisions about matters affecting the common life That he avoids the more ethically laden phrase the common good is I suspect I may be wrong symptomatic of a care not to be seen to assert that the activities of the humanities are necessarily ethically driven or endowed with special merit that I though I don't imagine he would reject the phrase the common good. The accent here is not on safeguarding knowledge of the historical formation of western culture and providing a kind of cultural lingua franca as in the liberal arts tradition, or as for Nussbaum, on the moral qualities cultivated in individuals or institutions by an education in the humanities. All this is much less specific than the liberal arts listing of subject specific skills ideally nurtured within a general education. But the British system of specialisation, as I've had cause to mention before, doesn't in the main admit of a defence of the humanities by way of their role within a humane general education. We specialise very early on here. Rather Mulhern confines his attention to the humanity support for that aspect of the wider democratic culture that's encoded in the structure or form of open debate and better summarised by the word polity than the word ethos. Mulhern foregrounds moreover aspects of the common pursuits of the humanities that have to do not with new knowledge or ideas but with ongoing and to a degree repetitive disputation in our evaluation of the forms of cultural representation. One function of scholarship in the humanities is after all to go over ground that generations have been over before. Not only because interpretations and evaluations may change, but because it's part of the scholar's responsibility to keep reinterpreting and reevaluating that cultural memory in the context of the now. And this will involve as Mulhern puts it deep and abiding conflicts of understanding and commitment that crisscross our disciplines as they do all cultural life. As I said, Mulhern's is, I think, the best defended articulation of the democracy argument, pitched as a general claim for higher study in the humanities that we've heard to date in the British debate. It takes us beyond what's been until recently a standard complaint, often but by no means exclusively heard from the left, that we're experiencing a widespread democratic deficit, a growing gap between formal and substantive democracy that could only be filled by a revitalization of participatory democracy at the national level, and the creation and protection of political spaces allowing for genuine communication argument agreement across a civil society, a global civil society by itself, that last analysis hasn 't been of great help to the defense of the humanities it 's not much advanced on the kind of easy claim to political kudos involved in aligning ourselves with obviously desirable aspects of democracy. so for equality and inclusiveness now reads substantive communication. Malhern keeps the argument relatively specific asking us to recognise the political value of a culture competent to criticise the acts of mediation through which political representation does its work. He also points us to one indicative area in which recent British governments have specifically misrepresented the nature of the democracy's interest in higher education. The egalitarian interest in access to the goods of education, not all of them instrumental goods, has repeatedly been redescribed as the narrowly instrumental goal of retooling the workforce. You can speculate, I think, that this redescription may itself have been instrumental, a way of selling enlarged access to the more reluctant among taxpayers. Both points are a helpful advance in clarity for the democracy needs this argument. They remind us if we're inclined to worry about overstating the importance of higher education. That the standards for participation in a democracy are, though within the reach of all sufficiently informed and rational citizens, preferably quite high. To be capable of propagating, interpreting and evaluating ideas in open debate is not a small competency. Some of the reservations I raised earlier are still not entirely laid to rest here for me. For all Mulhern's, Mulhern's wariness about cheaply earned political prestige, This is an argument that makes the humanities look very high-minded, it's not cheaply owned, but it is still, I think, exceptionally high-minded. He presents explicitly the humanities in one version of their best, and as he puts it, it is not in the nature of the best to be the usual. As with Arnold, the appeal to the best brings an inevitable reply, who's best? There's no mention here of the more fanciful lines of inquiry and expression that can be worth trying out and sometimes letting go or about all the work that's assiduous rather than ingenious, or playful rather than serious, though any teacher knows that one good joke can sometimes get the point across to students better than a crafted critique. And when humanities departments start to look as politically serious as this, it's worth recalling that they are centres of low satire as well as high thought, of education remedial as well as elite. Indeed, the remedial work, teaching basic competence and coherence and expression, may be as real a contribution to a democratic culture from our universities as the higher work of criticism. Malherne's account of us at our most politically serious may also leave one wondering still how much the humanities can distinctively claim here by way of self-justification. One straightforward defense of their position is that they preserve and continue the higher order practices that are passed on to those who'll go on to teach the humanities at school level. In short, they teach the teachers in the conventional phrase. Primary and secondary teaching are, of course, only two of the many career paths pursued by humanities graduates who take the knowledge and practices nurtured at university into very many areas of public life, including government itself. But these areas are also fed from other departments of the university, and the critical work associated here with the humanities alternatives conceived and propagated, interpreted and evaluated in open debate, decided on directly or according to various norms of representation, is or it should be characteristic also of how students are educated in the sciences and social sciences. It's definitive of intellectual work per se rather than the possession of any one domain of scholarship. Such intellectual work warrants the description humane but as indicative of a critical cast of mind towards all cultural arrangements and expressions that should be found right across our domain of inquiry. Mulhern indeed accepts this. At base it seems to me he's articulating, it's not just it seems to me, he is, he's articulating a defence not just of the humanities, but of the university as a place of enlightenment. In his account, the humanities are being practised whenever a scientist breaks off from the routinized practice of a method and starts to ask why the methods become a default practice. This then is a kind of philosophy. Or whenever a health professional working in a multicultural environment starts to ponder the authority of the dominant medical discourse. To do that is to embark on ethics and rhetoric. The humanities differ in that they practice these kinds of dubitative and speculative thinking in concentrated form, that's it really, so that their disciplines stand collectively as a specialist agency of a defining general ethos of learning and inquiry. Once again the strength of the current political assertion that the humanities have a larger or more important claim for value here rests on the observation which is surely correct but it ought also to be historically and politically contingent that it's become theirs as a consequence of the downgrading of those kinds of thinking in other areas of the university and of public life. In one of his more temperately gadflyish late essays, The Priority of Democracy to Philosophy, Richard Rorty asks the question Does liberal democracy need philosophical justification? His answer is that those like himself, John Rawls, and John Dewey, who view the question pragmatically, quote, we'll say that although it may need philosophical articulation, it does not need philosophical background. On this view, the philosopher of liberal democracy may wish to develop a theory of the human self that comports with the institutions he or she admires. But such a philosopher is not thereby justifying these institutions by reference to more fundamental premises, but the reverse. He or she is putting politics first and tailoring a philosophy to suit. Fleshing out our self-image as citizens of a liberal democracy with a philosophical view of the self then may well be something we want to do in addition, but this sort of philosophical fleshing out doesn't have much importance for Rorty. Whether democracy needs the humanities is not the same question, since the humanities are offering not to justify democracy, but to keep it true to principles that have long possessed strong justification. In one interpretation of Plato's Gadfly analogy, they're keeping it in good health. But the distinction Rorty's making between philosophical work that articulates a justification for democracy and philosophical work that puts the political commitment to democracy first and fits its theories to that commitment secondarily is clearly pertinent. Mulhern does just that. He puts the common political commitment of the citizens of democracy to their own good government first, and then he asks what the humanities can do that serves it. The connection between the humanities and democracy then rests not primarily on the claim that humanities foster a distinctive knowledge content in those who study them, or even that they assist the development of particularly desirable psychological qualities, but that they teach in concentrated form the critical processes of the wider democratic polity, and in some measure they represent and model those processes. They are collectively a forum for intellectual and political argument of a high order, embedded in a wider culture that has those practices at its political core, and that has historically supported their higher pursuit in the university, not least financially. Advocates for the liberal arts system would not, I assume, resist this formulation, which isn't at odds with their own traditions of defense, though it takes a different argumentative path. Not everyone who works in the humanities divisions of universities will share Mulhern's prioritization of the political. My experience of talking about the terrain of this lecture um, to date, so it's, I suppose it's been in live in some form for about a year now. Is that audiences simply split, and/or at least readers of it simply split? That people for whom the political is a priority in the work they do, it speaks to them, and for people who want to do close critical reading of poetry, or whatever it is, which isn't predominantly political, the problem is always going to be the justification for that priority. For taking that priority. So some will think that the case for a higher education remains unproven, that we should trust in a basic primary and secondary education to provide for the critical and devalued capacities of ordinary citizens. Also, some will be more captious that we should put more trust in the various kinds of value attached to the humanities that don't require the image of the democracy, noble and sluggish or ailing, to justify them. To the counter-argument that in Jonathan Arack's phrase removing the democratic claim from our justifications for the humanities would leave us nothing important to do they will reply that it leaves us plenty some of which is important and some but not all of that primarily political but some of which might have to be content to be unimportant just careful or scholarly or fanciful or pleasurable but not particularly consequential it's worth reiterating however that the justification of the humanities on the grounds that they teach and practice at the highest level The intellectual skills necessary for the good working of democracy isn't a definitional claim it's a defense of their public value that works inward from the needs of the polity to the contribution the humanities amongst others can can make it assumes as did socrates that the democracy is strengthened by having a higher level of reasoning available within it as mill put it that it makes a great difference whether or not that higher reasoning is heard but it claims no special political authority for those who make the humanities their profession Its advocates will undoubtedly feel impelled to articulate their political defence when that contribution is in doubt, but it doesn't require a state of emergency for their claim to have validity.